You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. Good evening. You are listening to TikTok on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded territories of the Huckamanum-speaking Musqueam people. I am your host for the next half hour. My name is Madeline Taylor. I work here at CITR. I'm really, really lucky in that. And uh, TikTok is your weekly half-hour spoken word check-in. So we have tons of amazing volunteers at CITR covering events all over the city, doing all kinds of interesting things, talking to fascinating people, and trying to get the word out about all of the amazing free, um, sometimes academic events that are happening. So we talk about these things on all kinds of different shows. There's the Arts Report, News 101. We have three new collective shows coming up that are going to be talking more about about social justice issues. And in this half hour, I, I I focus on things that don't quite fit into all of those spaces. So this week, I have an interview with Dr. Anthony Shelton, who is the director of the Museum of Anthropology. And he did a lecture last week called Wishari Atari and the Heart of the World. So he was talking about an indigenous group from Mexico who have a very interesting Um, version of cosmology and he actually lived with them for a period in the 70s to study them anthropologically pardon me that's a bit of a tongue twister Um, and had some really interesting stories to share so for the first uh, 20 minutes or so of this show you will hear Dr. Anthony Shelton talking about the Wishari Atari And in the last little bit, you will hear Christine Kim, who is an arts report contributor, and she actually attended the lecture that Dr. Anthony Shelton did on Tuesday, September 29th, and she has a little review for that. So enjoy and learning about cosmology and the Wishari Atari people. I'm here with Dr. Anthony Shelton, director of UBC Museum of Anthropology, and we are here to talk about the Wishari Atari and the Heart of the World lecture that will be happening on Tuesday, September 29th at the Museum of Anthropology. So first off, can you tell me about who the Wishari Atari people are and where they're from? Thank you. Um, They live in northwest Mexico um, in a very inhospitable mountainous terrain. Um, it takes about two days walking to the nearest Mexican um, village. Um, but what's interesting about them is that they're part of Uto Aztecan speakers, and so they speak the same. We um, the the language um, is the same as that that the Aztec used in central Mexico, and also that the Hopi um, speak in um, the American Southwest. So they're part of a a large language family um, that covers a lot of north and central Mexico and parts of the southern parts of the U.S. Where did your interest in this uh, indigenous people come from? Oh, as um, I think as a student of anthropology in the 1970s, um, um, growing up in um, England, it was a very... romantic concept of anthropology um, I had in those days. Um, I'd always been interested in religion and cosmology. Um, I've um, My first degree was also partly in theology. 
and um, I was looking for the most isolated people I could find uh, in North America. How have the Wishiariatari people interacted with colonizers and subsequent rulers in that they are also, as you said, isolated peoples? Because I imagine they haven't gone, um, quote unquote, untouched by Western civilization. Yeah, no, really good, interesting question. Um, they're unique in several ways. Well, let me first of all say that um, when I was with them in the 1970s and early 80s, a lot of the history of that area was unknown. It was just starting to be written. Um, part of my work was working in archives. Um, but what it seems is that um, as the um, Spanish, uh, Spanish invasion of Mexico proceeded, the groups in front of them moved further and further from the um, east to the west. And some of these groups um, came together um, to form kind of composite groups, people from different language backgrounds, um, and all of them being pushed um, in the direction of the west into more and more mountainous lands. And so... Uh, they may not originally have been, have originated in this part of Mexico, in, in the west, northwest part of Mexico. Um, what happened then was that um, that area wasn't really, um, it was never pacified. Um, it wasn't visited by Christian missionaries until the 18th century. So a good 300 years after the conquest of um, mo most of Mexico, uh, the missionaries built churches and um, two or three um, fortified churches, which is what they did uh, throughout that area, throughout Mexico. Um, but they were forced out of the area repeatedly. And the Wisharitari and their neighbors, the Cora, the Tepiwan, um, number of uh, rebellions. And so there was a kind of a tacit agreement between the military, between the Spanish military and the church, which was never really, um, whereas the church wanted a, a more kind of aggressive policy towards indigenous people, the military, who were very few, um, in order to kind of maintain some semblance of order, actually weren't that, weren't as aggressive as they were elsewhere in Mexico. Um, there were times when the Wisharitari um, rebelled and um, the missionaries were massacred. In fact, this kind of repeated itself a number of times. And by and large, they remained independent until, semi-independent until about the 1950s. 90. So very, very late on. Um, even the um, a representative of the um, Summer Institute of Linguistics who tried to record their language um, in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, um, abandoned his attempt um, and left the Sierra. So there are churches in the Sierra. Most of the churches are, have been made into temples by the Wisharitari. Um, and are used for their own ends. So there's a kind of an accommodation, I would say. I mean, there's been an impact um, on of Western um, uh, Western influence there, but there's also been um, a lot of um, quite successful um, um, attempts to maintain the culture. It's has differed it has changed 
um, today, I mean, the biggest, um, I should say, actually, in the 1970s, one of the um, one of the really dangerous things that was happening was because this is such an isolated area, is that um, drug barons were moving in there. Um, it was a very precarious existence that the Wisharitari have. Some some years the harvest would the corn the corn harvest would fail, and um, um, drug barons would come in, basically offer them a deal uh, that if they use their land to grow drugs, they would provide maize in return. And um, this problem became has become greater and greater in some of those communities. Um, and then more recently, uh, there's a danger of a Canadian mining corporation um, looking at uh, developing the most sacred mountain and remining it for silver. Taking it back a little bit to when you mentioned that they hadn't, um, they didn't have contact with Western colonizers until 300 years after the Spanish landed. How do we, how do we have uh, records of their movements before, presumably missionaries and European government officials were present? Well, they probably did have contact. Um, I'm not saying they didn't have contact. Um, but one of the things that was happening was that they were being pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a people in movement, um, um, and there would have been struggles. It wasn't just that they were being pushed. There was, uh, there's also a kind of, um, uh, by and large, a kind of a, an undigested historical record of um, indigenous, um, indigenous um, resistance movements against the Spanish. Um, so that contact would have been there. No, the um, what it's the what it's based on. There are accounts. There are archival accounts. One of the problems is that um, um, commonly the we, the Wichari are known as Wicholes. Wicholes in Spanish is usually used as a G instead of a, a H. Um, sometimes it's with an ends in an ES. Sometimes the whole orthography changes quite dramatically over the last three hundred years. So, if you look in the archives and do archival research in Guadalajara, for example, you can find mention of them, but they're, it's very difficult to actually identify who they are, which which these different groups are. There's also a lot of mention of other groups which have disappeared completely. Um, so there is an archival record. There's also an archaeological record, and um, there's a number of archaeological missions that have worked in those areas um, uh, that are putting that history together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think was the factor that has allowed them to survive colonization in this way, or do you think it was luck? The isolated nature of the Sierra. It's um, it's. Um, very kind of uh, precip- the landscape is very very precipitous. Now you probably walk for um, you can walk for half an hour and then you have to spend um, three hours descending into a canyon and five hours actually climbing the other canyon um, side in order to walk another quarter of a mile. Um, one of the things is that the settlements um, the settlements are quite large communities and they tend to live in ran- in, in in rancherias in. Um, Extended fam, what were you? Extended families, um, very in very in very isolated parts, and they would only come together um, for certain festivals uh, of the year. And these festivals are all kind of um, 
Western imposed festivals like um, Easter, although they have their own interpretation of Easter, uh, which is very different from any Easter you would see being um, um, worshipped, um, uh, celebrated uh, in, a, in, in, in a church. In, uh, and also, um, um, you see the Day of the Dead they don't recognize, um, the, the Day of the Virgin of Guadalupe they do. And um, that's often associated with the election of a new governor. So the lecture that you will be uh, giving tomorrow talks about the Wishyariatari and the heart of the world. So mm. as cosmology is the focus of that, can you give us a little bit of an overview of what is so interesting about mm. their cosmology? Mm. I think one of the tired, um, one of um, the tired... Um, ways that Westerners look at landscape is we often see landscape as um, commodity. We often see it as utilitarian spaces to be consumed, to be used, to be um, for our own individual pursuits. And uh, we did an exhibition here about two years ago called The Marvelous Real, which was um, um, on um, Mexican art, actually. And I remember being asked afterwards by um, a couple of visitors, um, don't we have a marvellous reel here in Canada? Isn't our landscape marvellous? And yes, of course it's marvellous. Um, we've forgotten to read the signs. Um, for First Nation peoples, it's marvellous. It's a construction of ancestors. It's, it, it, it's, it's an embodiment of ancestral history. We don't see it as that anymore, and I think for the Wechol, what's really interesting is that um, it's very, it's a very similar view. The landscape was created by the ancestral deities who sacrificed themselves through different ways in order to create the sun and the moon, um, the rivers and the streams, um, lakes, mountains, everything around us, the vegetation, the animals. Um, it, the world exists on two levels, through the world of appearances, which is as you see it, but also a world of essences. And these essences are the way the um, the way to identify different um, topographical um, features with ancestors and to see and know the story of actually what the significance of that really is, which lies, which lies hidden. I think this is really, really important, um, and they offer a lesson like many other indigenous peoples, um, not only in British Columbia but along the Amazon, in terms of the importance of of of, of of the significance of landscape uh, and it's so closely tied to cosmology it's so closely tied to our own origins and to our own survival and that's that's what I'm going to be talking about mm -hmm. is there any reason that you're holding this lecture now is there uh, developments in research that are happening or uh, political events that have uh, inspired this in terms of time um, not really. Um, one of the things that the museum has been trying to do in the last five years is we've moved um, our collections come from all over the world. And in fact, we have about 4,000 objects from Latin America, the largest collection this side of Toronto. Um, we've been doing more programming on Latin America. Um, we did, um, we've done one, two, three, three exhibitions in the last um, three years on Latin America. So this is really part of trying to you know, do more and more on, um, on 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 that part of the world, as well as Africa and um, Europe and, and and elsewhere as well. Mm -hmm. 
How do you see the Wisharyatari people's beliefs mixing in with things like Canadian mining corporations coming down to Mexico to try to develop and that sort of thing? How are those two cultural perspectives interacting? They don't mix at all. They're completely incompatible. And I think it's a responsibility of moral individuals in whatever country to defend um, those territories which are being impinged on by foreign, by these kind of aggressive foreign companies. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about your experiences visiting them and learning about them in the 1970s? Well, I arrived as a very naive anthropologist. I think I was eight, no, 21 at the time. And, um, you know, talking to them and kind of really saying, well, what I want to, they said, well, what are you, what, what are you going to do? So I said, well, I'd like to actually study, um, my interest is in ideas of cosmology, space and time. They talked to me about land problems. And, um, and even then, really, the land problems date back to the 19, at least to the 1950s and actually probably before that, um, when it's properly historical research has been done, you'll probably find that it's a, 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 an occur, occurring um, problem. Um, one of the things they said to me was that um, cosmology, religion, is something one can't talk about. You have to experience it, and you experience it through ceremonies and through rituals, through listening to stories and myths, and really kind of living a life um, as they live their life. And um, I think one year, it's kind of naive to imagine that anybody could really begin to do that in one year. So uh, one gets insights into this. I'd like to kind of say there are things that always remain unexplained and yet continue to haunt us. So one of the stories which I've not written uh, is concerns um, St. Andrew, St. Andreas. And each of the five Wichol communities has a saint that um, over protects it and over, over, oversees it. The Saint Andrew, uh, when I was there, he was burnt in a fire. And um, this was thought to augur really badly for the community, that terrible things would happen. The patron had, had been destroyed. Um, there was a military, um, there was a military um, officer in the community who kept coming backwards and forwards. Who really was very much trying to ingratiate himself into the community. He said, "Fine," he said, "I will bring another Saint Andrew." Um, he came to the community, flew into the community on Cessnas, which you could you could enter through small aircrafts, um, off and on for a long time. On one of those occasions, he brought um, he brought um, he presented a, a statue of Saint Andrew, which he'd had carved in one of the cities. So here we are. We bought a new Saint Andrew. They said uh, the shamans were gathered together, and after a few days, they said this is not Saint Andrew. He doesn't speak. He he he, spe he only speaks Spanish. Um, so this military person left and took the piece. A few months later, he came back with another piece, and. Um, said, I bought you St. Andrew. Um, there was a meeting and they said, no, no, this isn't this isn't St. Andrew. He's not a Weechol St. Andrew, not a Wisharitari St. Andrew. Um, so then the shamans got together. And as I said, the Wisharitari live in these really dispersed communities, um, ranchers, rancherias. And one night I was woken up um, to the um, sight of um, people with torches that were walking down the different um, canyon sides and we joined them and we walked to a tree and the tree was um, cut down and this is the tree that the shaman had dreamt 
should be the wood to make the new Saint Andrew. Now, how you explain how those people knew to converge on the same tree is inexplicable. Um, the military guy took the piece of wood and again, what, um, as I say, he was coming and going all the time from the Sierra. He came with a knapsack and in the knapsack was a Saint Andrew, which he'd not told anybody. And a whole group of people threw themselves down uh, in front of him and started to pray uh, when he arrived. And he said, well, what is happening? Why are you saying this to me? And he said, we're not. We're talking to St. Andrew. Um, so again, I would say there are certain ways of knowing the world, of being in the world that we've forgotten in the West. And um, for me, anthropology is not so much uh, a discipline as a kind of um, a consciousness, a way of thinking, a way of understanding um, and disseminating that kind of understanding in a way renewing what it is that we've lost and creating links between different peoples. Mm -hmm. Have you found that that cultural perspective and that way of knowing has influenced people who are not of Wishariatari heritage in the areas where they live? It has, but in um, kind of unforeseen circumstances. In the 1960s, um, there was a huge influx of hippies into that area. And um, I think this was um, due to um, certain paintings that uh, they started to do using wax. And what they did was they embedded colored yarns into this wax, which was pasted on hardboards. And um, these were incredibly bright acrylics. And they represented the myths which had been transferred into this kind of medium. And they were being sold... Um, mainly at that time, I think, in California. So they've become um, kind of um, uh, famous amongst hippie cultures. What the Wishari did with most of the hippies is they kind of, well, the stories anyway that they recalled, was rounding them up until the next plane came and shipping them out or putting them into, they have these dark jails, which are kind of not jails as we have them, but they're, they're thatched huts, basically, with doors that lock, and then just getting rid of them as soon as they came in, as soon as they came in. They also told me that they'd actually thought of doing the same to me. Um, but because I arrived on a government plane, decided to wait to find out what I, what I wanted. Um, so, yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, um, I wanted to ask as well, um, how do you place yourself as a person of British descent where there's a huge legacy of colonialism in studying indigenous cultures? Hmm. Um. No, it's a very, very good question. Um, a lot of my work, um, in fact, my life's work, has been looking at colonialism and the impact of colonialism on museums. And um, I guess the vast body of my work has been looking at how you decolonize museums, um, how you um, return voices, but not only return voices. My background as a student, I also, um, my, I'm a sociologist and um, and at that time, it involved quite a lot of Marxism. So there's also a political commitment, actually, from where I'm coming from. Wonderful. What lessons should the Academy take from people like the Wishariatari and their alternative ways of knowing? Hmm. Um, in 2010, um, the museum, we opened something that we call the Multiversity Galleries. And this idea of multiversity galleries already came from two post-colonial theorists, um, Claude Alvarez, um, uh, an Indian 
um, theorist and um, Paolo Wangola, Ugandan theorist. And the idea was that, um, basically, very, put very, very, very succinctly, is that um, part of the colonial legacy is a certain type of knowledge with a certain type of epistemology, a certain preconceptions. It values certain things dis uh, and then devalues other things which are almost hidden from it. And the argument was that part of the um, reason why certain parts of the world are underdeveloped is because that the knowledge systems that impose our Western knowledge systems, which are inappropriate uh, in those regions. What they advocate is a kind of what they call a reverse anthropology, which is basically to relativize and for to look at Western cultures and deconstruct Western cultures. In fact, we have that, um, not enough of it. Um, and when we opened the multiverse to galleries, the idea was that there are different ways of seeing and, and, and um, seeing and understanding things and displaying things. I mean, displaying involves classification, so different ways of classifying things. So downstairs in the museum, a lot of the spaces given to the multiverse to galleries, which actually, um, particularly with Northwest Coast peoples, um, we went to those communities and we asked how they wanted to be shown, um, how they wanted to be represented. And different communities asked for different criteria um, by and large, we use those criteria. Um, we also did some work in the Pacific, um, again, trying to decolonize and um, show material our Pacific people, um, particularly in Papua and um, um, the Solomon Islands um, and Fiji, um, the ideas that they had. And we did a little bit of work in Ghana. And we've been doing it in Latin America, um, but using students and using um, Latin American uh, people of Latin American descent here. So it's done in kind of different ways, really. Um, but what we hope is that that's a continuing process and that will, the museum actually, you turn the museum into a kaleidoscope, a kind of um, a machine through which you can see the multiplicity of ways that people use to know the world and to see it. And, um, and that, is, I think, enrich enriches the whole of humanity and teaches us to be self-critical, which is something we dearly need. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Shelton. Is there anything you'd like to add before we sign off here? No, I think that's probably everything. Wonderful. Thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah. Thank you. On September 29th, as part of Mexico Fest, Dr. Anthony Shelton gave a lecture entitled The Wheat Chew and the Heart of the World. Dr. Shelton is the director of the Museum of Anthropology at UBC, and he has been since August 2004. He is an anthropologist, curator, and professor originally from Britain. His research background stems from various aspects of Mexican cultural history, which is why his great knowledge on the lecture subject matter was a great fit, and fits so nicely with the aims of Mexico Fest in general. Dr. Shelton started off his lecture by explaining where the Wichu live. He showed a map up on the slides to illustrate how the Wichu people live in the mountainous, isolated parts of Northwest Mexico. From collected artifacts and excursions to live among the Wichu people, anthropologists have pieced together the religious, cultural, and social practices of the people. I was surprised to see a photo of Dr. Shelton in his early years actually in Mexico, excursions to the isolated parts of Northwest Mexico. Along these lines, before this lecture, I had never attended an anthropology class before, and as such, this idea that you could piece together an entire culture bit by bit 
at spend entire decades studying about the life of one kind of people was incredible. People may talk about what it's like to live in various places like China or South Africa or Australia, but hearing Dr. Shelton talk about the Wichu people and where they live and how they live was especially unique because the culture was so void of the common effects of globalization. Its culture was rooted in very old traditions and beliefs that almost felt like they were from another world. With the different patterns and images on Wichu clothing, brick walls, etc., Dr. Shelton explained what all of these patterns and images represented. Through these explanations, Dr. Shelton delved into the traditional shamanistic practices of the Wichu people. The Wichu people believe in several different gods, but a common trait among these celestial beings is that the beings are part of the earth. What I mean by this is that these gods didn't just create the earth and sky out of nothing, but gave their very own selves or parts of their bodies to create the world that the Wichu live in. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the 